All right, so we are wrapping up Jude today. And, and before I get into Jude, I want to encourage everyone to be reading 1 John. So I would encourage you, if you don't already have a reading um, schedule, a, a, a scripture schedule you're reading, reading 1 John, it's a small little book. It's like Jude, it's small. Uh, reading that every day this week would be a great preparation for the, the sermon coming this Sunday. Uh, Colby is going to be preaching, so keep him in your prayers as he is dutifully preparing to, to bring that sermon. So, so we're wrapping Jude up, and we are going to be looking, again, I'm going to read from uh, Jude 24 and 25, the last two verses, the doxology of Jude. So follow along with me as I read. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. So as we finish kind of looking at the very last, the, the last uh, part of the, the last verse in Jude, we're going to pick up. We covered all the way through to, uh, to the phrase, we covered the phrase through Jesus Christ our Lord. So we're ready for be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. So we're going to start with, with what we're doing here. So we've gotten to this. We're talking about God. To remind you, we're talking about God. And then we get to this last part. And, and this last part we're saying, be, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority. So we're basically saying, these things be God's forever. Right? We're saying, you know, toward God, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority. So let's first talk about what glory means. And glory is one of these things we say it all the time in our church service. We say it in our songs. It was like in four times in the, the songs we sang. We talk about it in scripture. We talk about it in our prayers. We, we, we talk about glory. And glory is one of those hard things for me to get my mind around. What do I mean when I think about glory? What am I even thinking about? And we have... Uh, different, um, different times throughout Scripture that, that glory is discussed. And we see um, in the New Testament, the word that's most often translated into glory uh, is doxa, which is where we get doxology from. And it's this concept of, of majesty and praise, praiseworthiness, um, excellence, uh, magnificence, preeminence. Dignity, right? These kinds of words. Um, majesty is particularly a thing belonging to God, right? So this majesty belonging to God. Um, but it's not only for God. A king could have kingly majesty, which belongs to him as supreme ruler. He's majestic in the sense that he is he holds this absolute authority, right? Like God holds absolute authority and, and perfection in his deity. So, so we've got this idea of glory. But even that's kind of abstract, right? It's kind of glory. We also see in the Old Testament, we see, we see Moses before the glory. He requests to see the glory of God. God's glory descends on the top of a mountain and all the, the Israelites are scared. They're all scared to death because when God shows up, that's a very natural response for us mere mortals is to be afraid. We're even afraid when the angels show up, let alone when God shows up. And Moses requests to see the, the full glory of God. And, and God says, no, you can't. You can't do that. You'll die. You can't handle it. So he makes a cleft in the rock and he, and he puts Moses in the cleft and Moses kind of sees the, the, the sides of him, right? He kind of sees just the, just gets a glimpse 
of his glory, and it's, and it's amazing. So, so this glory is something that's real. There's a real tactile, uh, sensory thing that goes along with this glory. Now, that's not what we mean when we sing to God be glory, right? Because we don't see that. So there's, there's obviously a lot to these words. The Old Testament word, the Hebrew word that's used for this is kevad, kevad. And, and it, it actually comes from the word that means armament, like weapons. And it, it's, it's uh, the arms and equipment of a soldier or military unit. It's, the root word is heavy. It's this heaviness. Uh, it's also, uh, it's often paralleled with weaponry and, and it's a figuratively used to, to talk about power, right? It's power. So God's glory is his power. It's almost this, you know, we see in the story of Moses, this, this visual representation of a spiritual power. And it's so much that, that man can't even be in its presence, right? It's so much power that we would just, melt away. We, we see this um, again when the, the Jews bring in their, when they uh, build the, the tabernacle and, and build the ark and God's presence descends on the ark and, and, and the, the seat of God, right? Where God descends and his presence is there, his glory is there. And this ark is this mysterious thing that if you don't handle correctly, you die, right? So, so again, we see this example of God's glory being so intense and so powerful that we've got to respect it. It's not just something that's pretty. It is beautiful, but it's not beautiful in the way that a flower is beautiful, right? We, it would be a flower that can also kill you. That, that, that's the beauty of it, right? So it's, this, it's, it's a weird word. It's an odd word. So... So, the, so that's kind of what we're talking about with this kind of God's power and importance, his weightiness, right? his renown. We, we see this. Um, John Piper talks about, when he talks about God's glory, but being a ref, the, the kind of a realization of man of God's holiness kind of creates glory, right? So you have God's holy, God's holy. We see his holiness and us realizing that holiness creates glory. That's, that's us acknowledging God's glory. So, so, we see, um, so we see this, right? And we also see in John where, where the word becomes flesh. And, and John says, we have seen his glory. So now we see this connection with the glory of God and then Jesus as being the, the son of the father, but part of that God, uh, you know, that part of the three persons of God. So we see Jesus, who is the glory, the, the personification of glory. All right, so now let's move to, to majesty. So, uh, oh, an, an important thing here, when we're saying be holy, or be glory, be majesty, be dominion, be authority. We're not saying God has glory because we say he does. This isn't something that we are bestowing upon God. We are acknowledging just the same way as if I went to the ocean and said, wow, you know, this is kind of my response every time I have gone to the ocean. Wow, this is amazing, Right? The ocean isn't amazing because I declare it to be amazing. It was amazing before I got there. I'm just acknowledging that this is amazing, right? And I'm agreeing with everyone else who's standing there with their eyes gawking at the ocean, right? So there's a a unity in the fact that we are all being amazed by the ocean. So so that's what what we're doing here. That's what Jude is is doing here. So majesty. Majesty, um, the... The Greek word for this is, um, is M-E-G-A, mega, right? Big, mega. And then L-O-S-U-N-E. And, and uh, I, I'm going to try my best not to pronounce some of these. I don't want Samantha to throw something at me. Uh, so, so 
So we see, you know, we've got this, this concept, and, and this one's easy. It really just means majesty, just the majesty of God, the greatness of God. So, so there's, there's this kind of, again, lumping in this glory, this majesty. We're trying to paint the Jews, painting this picture that this isn't just a, a, a simple little God. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about God. Glorious God, majesty of God. All right, so the, the next word, dominion, dominion. This is not a word that we talk about a lot in our language, right? We don't use this word much. Um, and, it, and it comes from um, the Greek kratos. And, and, and the reason I feel confident, at least with that pronunciation, still probably got it wrong, but I'm willing to try is it's also the name of uh, characters in literature that I've read about. So I, I feel okay about that one. And it stands for force or strength, or power, might. It can, even be, it can even be used to talk about a mighty deed for someone. You know, it's dominion. So it's, it's, not, just, um, it's not just being strong. It's being strong enough to do what you want to. No one else is going to stop God. So it's not like God is just a little stronger than Satan, right? So when I was a kid, I had such a a kind of warped understanding of spiritual world. And in my mind, there was, you know, Satan was just almost as strong as God. And there was a fight, right? It could go either way. And we know that's not true. God is ultimately more powerful. So the, the difference between me and Satan and, and Satan is incredibly powerful. Without God's restraint, you know, the Bible talks about him roaming like a lion looking to, to devour us. Without God restraining Satan, he would destroy us all. But the difference between me and, and Satan's power, it's even greater difference, distance between Satan's power and God's power because God has absolute power. So this force, this strength, this power, this might that God has, he has dominion. He can do what he wants to do. No one can stop him. And that leads into the next word, authority. Because some people can have the strength or the power to do what they want, but they don't have the authority to do what they want. And that authority means that they have leave or permission to do it. So someone could come in here and be strong enough, right, to come in and take what they want to from my house, right? They could use force to take what they want. That's okay. You have, you're stronger than me. You can take what you want. That doesn't mean they're right in doing it. They don't have the authority to do it. That would be wrong for them to do that. God not only has the strength to do what he wants, but he has the authority to do as he pleases. So that leads us uh, into some, uh, some questions Some questions that are um, possibly difficult for us to think about and, and because we're, we're talking hypothetical, right? It's easy to, to think about God's dominion and his power and his authority and his glory and his majesty. We, yes, okay, everybody, we're, on, we're good. That's great. We can all agree on that. But then we start to have a, a harder conversation because then we start to point and say, okay, then what does this mean for us? So, so how does this affect the way we live? So you know, the questions that I, I would start to ask are things like, does your life point to God's glory? Do you live a life, you, you know, we, by, by saying these words, we are professing that God is glorious. okay. Are we doing anything other than just saying it? Does it affect the way we live? Does it matter? 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, 
So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Now, this can be a throwaway comment. I've even seen this used as an excuse, as permission to do things that someone shouldn't be doing. Oh, well, anything you do, do the glory of God. No, that is not what this means. This says that we, that, that we should consider our actions, even the small little things, the things we do every day. Right? How often do we eat? How often do we drink? These are mundane things, things that would be easy for us to just do out of habit without thinking about them. But this scripture is calling for us to do them to the glory of God, to be intentional about it. I don't know about you, but I am convicted about that. How much of my life is on cruise control? Sometimes I drive to work and I can't remember driving to work because I'm in such cruise control. I'm just going. I'm just going, stoplight, go, take a left, go. Dude, I'm, just, I'm just doing what I do. Now, how much time have I wasted when I could have been focusing on the glory of God? The other amazing thing about this is when I read this scripture, I, I not only see a command or a charge to do the mundane things of life intentionally and do them to God's glory. I also see permission here to do the mundane things of life. Right? We aren't only holy. We don't have to like, you know, there, there are times in church history where holy men, quote unquote, would do these terrible acts of kind of self, uh, uh, of self-pain or self-struggle. You know, they would walk up and down the, the steps of a church barefoot for, for thousands of times or they would you know, until they couldn't walk and they'd crawl, drag themselves up the steps as this like show of I'm doing this because the God I serve is so great and he deserves such a, a such a sacrifice. And 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 I see here permission to say, God, no, I can honor God with the little simple things in my life. I don't have to go. I don't have to take a pilgrimage to Jerusalem and, and walk barefoot the whole way to prove No, God's saying, no, do the little things to my glory. Now, do the big things too, right? That's where it says, do all things, do all to the glory of God. So So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all things to the glory of God. So I see in this, this all things, right? So everything, the big things matter. Lord willing... I am preaching for the glory of God. That matters. But Lord willing, tomorrow, when everyone else is asleep and I'm fixing some eggs before I go to work, I will do that to the glory of God. Now look, I get that this is hard. It is so easy. I started off talking about how hard this is for me to be intentional. It is so easy to go about our lives as if we're just living. We're just living. We've got to eat, so we eat. We've got to drink, so we eat, drink. I've got to make money, so I've got to work. You know, I get home and the, you know, the kids are made a mess, so I've got to pick up the mess. Or, the, or the, you know... Kids want to play soccer, so I go and play soccer. Like it's, it's so easy for me. to We could just do this stuff, just one thing after the other, right? Just one foot after the other, just one activity after the other. And, not, and never stop and say, okay, how am I doing this for the glory, the glory of God? What can I do for the glory of God? So... So we talk about our actions, let's talk about our speech. Because that's something, right? That's something that we do is our speech. Do we speak of how great God is and how mighty His deeds are? Can people listen 
If I just if I clipped that little caterpillar recording thing on you and 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 recorded you for the week, could would you feel comfortable going back and going, yeah, I spoke about how great God was. I spoke about his glory. I spoke about his majesty. I spoke about his dominion and his authority. Or would you say, well, I mean, I prayed a couple times about that. And, and this is one of the things that, you know, I think people tend to say, well, okay, Cody, you're supposed to kind of feel that way because you're a pastor. You're one of the elders. Sure, y'all are supposed to talk about God. You're supposed to talk about his glory. But, I mean, we're just Christians, right? We're just, we just come to church here. We're not. No, I think you're missing the whole point. We, we are called, we're all called to be missionaries in the mission field. So we are either the mission field or we are missionaries. Every Christian. Now that's going to look radically different for some people, right? There are some people who go set up camps in other countries to to bring the word to communities that don't have it. And we think of those people, those are missionaries, right? Those are missionaries. But when you take a meal over to your neighbor and you make sure they understand, so you build a relationship and you, in, you invite them to pray for them, hey, how can I pray for you? You know, my brother is the first person I've ever seen do this. I'm sure thousands of people do it, so I'm not giving him credit, but he's the first person I saw do this. But we were at a, a restaurant and the, the waitress came up and he said, how can I pray for you? We're getting ready to pray. How can I pray for you? And it was awkward. It was awkward. Because this waitress didn't know what to do. Oh, I'm dealing with these crazy religious people. But then she opened up and said, well, actually... I'm, I'm going active military soon. I'm thinking the most recent time he's done this. I'm going, I'm going active next month into the military. I don't really know what that's going to be like. I'm kind of scared. So we prayed right there. He said, well, let, let's pray. Let's pray. And we prayed for him. Like that's... That, what do you think that communicated to that woman? We serve a God that cares about you. We care about you. And we care about you because God cares about you. And we're, we're going to take the awkward, we're going to take the risk of having an awkward exchange because we serve a God who's glorious and a God who has majesty and a God who has dominion and authority. So yes, I will put myself out there I don't know what you're going to say. You may hate me. You may hate Christians. I'm going to take that risk. Think about it. I'm saying like risk. Like that's a risk. Like my server's not going to like me. That's a risk. But think about what that, that's, that's what I'm going to do because I serve this great God. So, I want to point you to Psalms 145. Psalms 145. I'm going to start reading at verse 9 and read through 11, through 12. The Lord is good to all, and His mercy is over all that He has made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. So you see what this is telling us, right? This is saying, hey God, this is what your people are going to do. They're going to speak of your glory they're going to tell people of your power. They're going to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds. 
and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. So, are you one of these people? Are you a saint? Are you one of God's people? Does this categorize you? If you look back in your last several weeks of life, do you say, yes, that fits me? I meet that description. I will take a small aside here to point out verse 9, where it says, The Lord is good to all. His mercy is over all that He has made. We often think about the mercy that God has shown His, his children, right? His sheep, those that He has elected to call. And I often forget that God is showing mercy on everyone. On all His creation, God is showing mercy to. All the time. We don't see it. Because this often this mercy is the very holding together of our universe. We don't breathe without God willing it. So there's immense mercy being shown all the time to everyone. People talk about sometimes the hardest question to ask is, why are there bad things that happen sometimes? Why, why do bad things happen to good people? Often, that's a kind of Western perspective. The Eastern perspective is the opposite. They say, why does good things happen to bad people? Logically, it's the same thing, right? It's just the opposite Well, we see here God is blessing everyone, good and bad, with mercy to a certain level. Just existing is a mercy of God. All right, so we move on to the next phrase we're looking at. Before all time and now and forever. So... Again, this is a phrase that, like a lot of this doxology, be easy to kind of throw it away and say, oh, yeah, it just talks about God. He's, he's been here. He's here. He's going to be here later. Like, yeah, we're good. Move on. I think it's a much bigger deal to look at than that. That is what it means. God has no beginning and he has no end. But I want to focus in before all time. Before all time. Because you'd think, well, all time is all the time. How, do you, how are you before time? Well, let's look at First Genesis or Genesis 1, verse 1. The very first book of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So the, the phrase, the heavens and the earth here, is a phrase that... The, the Jews, Hebrew, used for everything. It's the universe. The heavens and the earth. Everything. So God's creating the universe. And in the beginning, God created the universe. There's an interesting thing about this. There is a physicist, and I cannot remember his name. I should have written it down. There is a physicist who came to believe and place his faith in Jesus Christ Because of that verse. It's interesting, isn't it? Most people don't think, well, the verse that led me to Christ, the the verse that led me to believe was in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. But it was for him. And the reason it was for him is because, like I say, he was a physicist. He was studying. He had studied the creation of the universe. He'd studied all of the, the science and the physics around the universe's creation. And he had studied how time and space are connected. They're really the same thing. They're made out of the same substance would be a way of saying it. There's no easy way to say this. I can't pretend like I understand it really. But the time and space are connected. You can't have one without the other. And when he researched all of these other religions, he saw creation stories that didn't match with his observing of the universe. 
And then he read this verse and he said, this, so when was this written? And then he went off and did some, some research about the Old Testament and how old these words are. And he said, this, this, this is special because this matches what we see as being science. We see space and time are tied together. You cannot have one without the other. And that's what this is saying. In the beginning of time, God created the universe. That is an amazing fact. But it also tells us something interesting about God. God existed before time, which is what our doxology in Jude tells us, right? Before all time, God existed. Now and forever. So we have this understanding that, that God is literally outside of time. His existence is is outside of time. If you're sitting there going, Cody, I don't even know what you're talking about. Yeah, me neither. All right, I don't understand this either. This is just a glimpse at how wonderful and glorious and outside of our understanding God is. Mankind is so good at making boxes and categories and putting things in those categories. Many people think that this is why we have succeeded as greatly as we have. Because our minds are made to make things in categories, right? And it allows us to cheat. We don't have to... When I see one banana and see that it's yellow and it's ripe and I eat it and it tastes good, I don't have to taste every other yellow banana from then on. I kind of I put them all in the same category and say, oh, I like the way those taste. Right? The, one, the first time I burn myself on a burning red hot ember of the fire, I immediately go, oh, so when I see anything that looks like a burning red hot ember, I say, that's hot. I'm not going to touch that. So we, we don't have to try everything. We can put things in boxes. We can try to understand them. And we do this with God. We try to put God in a box. We try to say, okay, there's God. We, we, I start to I read some scripture and I kind of put it in the box. Okay, I'm understanding this. I've got my mind around God. That is a dangerous thing to try to do because there's not a, we can't construct a box big enough to put God in. And we are reminded about this all the time because there's, we'll stumble over something and we'll say, well, this doesn't make sense to me. How, how are these two things true? How are these two passages true? I've even had, uh, had a conversation with a young man who was telling me about his friend. And his friend is not a believer. And his friend told him that he, how could he follow a God if he couldn't understand it? And I, I told this, this guy, um, a younger man, I, I would push back and say, how could you follow a God you understand? How could you follow a God that you could understand? It's kind of the whole point. God is beyond our understanding. He gives us pieces of understanding. He tells us about his nature. We wouldn't know it if he didn't tell us. He tells us about his power. He even tells us how to worship him, which is why we try to follow a, a model of worship that we see in Scripture. We don't understand God, so we're going to try to, we're going to do as he's told us to do. Oh, you want us to sing, Lord? We will sing. You want us to pray, Lord? We will pray. You want us to confess, Lord? We will confess. You want us to, to issue a doxology? We will issue a doxology. We will, we will follow your word. And are we getting it right every time? No. I've said this before. I know my theology has problems. I know that there are incorrect assumptions and, and decisions. If I knew what they were, I would fix them, right? But this, we, we all do the best we can. That's, that's what we're called to do. So, so moving on from the, the before all time and now and forever, we get to the last word in Jude. Amen. Um, 
Al Mueller, uh, when he speaks of the, the word amen, he preaches about, actually it was when he, he it's uh, his teaching on all of Jude. He says, I have more faith that I understand all the other words more than this one. This is the one word I will struggle with the most and, and have the least confidence in explaining. Which is interesting. Al Mueller is a very educated man, a very studied man. But the word amen is a, a, a remarkable word. I had no clue how remarkable it was until I started studying it. It's a transliteration, transliterated word, which means we say it and it's, we, we just took the word and put words, put our letters to make it as close to what we heard as possible. And apparently, that's how the word has been forever. It's, uh, some people argue that it's the most common word in human language because it was taken from the Jewish and just transliterated. So they're all very, very close to each other, which is interesting because I have been watching. Um, I, 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 I Googled this because this is interesting, right? And I found different languages where people would say a common prayer. And at the end, so they're saying the prayer in Spanish. And then they get to the end and they say, Amen. And then they're saying the prayer in Hebrew. And they get to the end and they say, Amen, or something close to Amen. They're saying a word, they're speaking in Arabic or, or Chinese. And they get to the end and they say, Amen. That's amazing. Right? This, this word has transcended languages. And, it, and the word means sure, truly. This is absolutely sure. It's also an assurance of confidence. It's basically saying this is true or let this be true or I believe this is true. I'm, I'm certain that it's true. That's, that's, that's the sense that this word gives us. I didn't realize this, but there's often it's used at the beginning of a statement. And that is to say, hey, listen up. This is really true. And sometimes it's even translated as truly, truly. So sometimes when you're reading the Bible and you read truly, truly, sometimes that's amen, amen. And we see this in Nehemiah 8, 6. And Ezra blessed the Lord the great God and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands and bowing their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. So this is an example here of, of the people saying, Amen, Amen, we agree. Ezra is blessing the Lord. He's 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 saying the Lord's great and the Lord is wonderful. And they're saying, amen, amen. We agree, we agree, we affirm, we are certain of this. I grew up in a Baptist church, a little Baptist church. The, the, the motto of the church was the country church in the city. The city was Shelbyville. This tells you something. All right, the country church in the city. And not a single worship service, not a single service or sermon would go by without at least one amen coming from the congregation. And sometimes many amens. And I, I, I never really understood. I mean, I guess I understood contextually like, oh, they're saying they agree, but it's way more than I agree. It's saying this is true and I am certain that this is true. Or maybe, depending on the context, it's saying God make this true. But we see this over and over in Scripture. First Chronicles 16.36 Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, and all the people said, Amen. and praised the Lord. Right, this is another reason why we say amen at the end of psalms or at the end of certain 
things we say. This is biblical. It's an example God has given us. 2 Corinthians 1.20 For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. Speaking of Jesus. That is why it is through Him that we utter our amen to God for His glory. Jesus becomes the embodiment of yes and amen. It is through Jesus that we can affirm the promises of God. This is such an astounding truth. It's amazing. God promises that sin will be punished. And because of Jesus, we can say amen. God promises life and forgiveness and eternal peace. And through Jesus, we can say amen. God promises to save his people. And through Jesus, we can say amen. And at the end of Jude, we see Jude saying, Amen. May all the things I've written be true. I am certain that all the things I have written are true. May they be true for you as they are for me. Amen. So, having wrapped up the book of Jude, now we ask ourselves kind of globally, we have, we have some global questions that the whole book should lead us to think about. We have talked about theology. We've talked about Jude warning us that there are going to be people in our midst who are not true converts. They are false converts. And they are going to sow these seeds of division among us. And we've got to be prepared to contend for the faith. He's showed us how, our, how we are to treat, how we are to answer those, those dissensions and those conflicts. We're to do so through mercy. And then he gives us a beautiful example of doxology. So, we have to ask ourselves, how will we now live then? Are we different now than we were before we studied Jude? Does it have an effect on us? On us? And going back and thinking back to one of those terms we talked about, we talked about dominion, power in our lives. So a question I would ask coming from having looked through Jude is, what, is, what has dominion over your life? What has power over your life? Romans 16, um, excuse me, Romans 6:14 tells us very clearly, "For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are under, you are not under law, but under grace." Here we have this example that sin that no longer has power over us. Now does that mean that we sin? Yes, we still sin but it no longer has power over us. So look at, at Psalms 1 or Psalm 115. 
I'm going to read verses 1 through 9. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but your name give glory. So don't give glory to us, but to your name be glory. For the sake of, our, of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Your idols are silver and gold, the work of, man, of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who made them become like them. So do all who trust in them. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is your help and your shield. But looking at verse 8, that those who've made them become like them, so do, the, do those who trust in them. That's interesting. What that says to me is those who make these idols or those who put their trust in these idols will one day be like those idols. What does that mean? Well, they will have a mouth but not speak. They will have feet but not walk. They will have eyes but not see. You see, those idols only promise death. It's all they can promise. But the Lord is help and strength and shield. So, if we say, all right then, let's, I want to live the way God wants me to live. I want to I serve Him in a way that brings Him glory and majesty and dominion and authority. I want to acknowledge those things in my life. That's good, but we've got to be careful. It is so easy for people to mess up and live a life, you know, as they are trying to seek a life that God wants them to live. There's two easy ways to mess up. There's many of them, but I'm going to talk about two. And one is legalism. It's checking the boxes. Oh, God, God wants me to be in his word. So I read every day. Check off the list. Read the word. Oh, I read. Check the list. Oh, got to pray. So I pray. Check the list. Now, is it wrong to have a checklist? No. Nothing wrong with having, I write important things down at work that need to happen. I write them down because they're important and they need to happen. But if you're doing it to check the list off, it can become real easy to start keeping score. Well, I got all my righteous living checks today. What about you, Colby? Did you get all your checks today? And then all of a sudden we start judging each other. Hmm. I checked off more than Cliff did. I must be a better Christian than Cliff. It's really easy to get legalistic about stuff and to lose the actual reason we're doing it. Because when you start reading the Bible so you can check it off your list, you're reading the Bible wrong. Now we need to be faithful and have discipline. That's what God calls us to do. But we also have to make sure we keep these things in the right place, in the right order. And particularly the next, the next thing I want to talk about is self-righteousness, which often comes from, from legalism, but it doesn't have to. I, I separate it out because it can be separate. This idea about, look, I'm doing this right. I'm doing this well. Look at me doing this. Man, it, you, you, are, you are walking toward pride, and pride is a dangerous place to be. Because God will either humble you, which is a 
a scary thought. But it's a blessing when you need to be humbled. So He'll either humble you or He will set you free to walk in your pride. Which is a far more scary alternative. So we've got to to have our, our ears up, our radar up for these things as we try to seek and live a life that God wants us to live. And we can't focus on what not to do. This is actually something that leads to legalism and leads to self-righteousness. We can't just say we, we've got to not live like this or I've got to not do that. We've got to look and say, okay, how should I live? How should I live? And I would point you to Micah 6, verse 8. It is a beautiful, succinct explanation about God's, God's expectations for how we should live. And he is, he is answering the people, so the people of, of Israel are saying, hey, well, what do we got to do? We got to make sacrifices. We gotta, what do we got to do? We got to sacrifice. Hey, we'll sacrifice our children. We'll sacrifice our children for you, God. That's how much we love you. Where that, isn't that good? And this is, God's, this is God responding to that. Micah 6, verse 8. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your Lord. And that love kindness, many translations use the word mercy. Show mercy. So I think... That verse is a beautiful way to sum up our looking at Jude. Because these, these that, that's a beautiful way to summarize what we've learned from Jude. Is that we are to do justice, love kindness, and to walk humbly with our God.